Hello and welcome to the Emeroid Digest Podcast. Uh, I am your host, Chuma Obineme, PGY6 fellow at Emory University in the Department of Digestive Diseases. Um, I am joined by my co-host, Dr. Jason Brown. Hey, everybody. Um, Jason, what is it that you, you do at our, our great fellowship uh, program? Yeah, I am... Um... Uh, an assistant professor here at Emory University. I uh, focus mostly on medical education. I'm down at Grady Memorial Hospital where um, I'm the site director for our, your GI fellowship, Chuma, and, uh, and help to run the fellowship overall and work with internal medicine residents and medical students. So uh, if you are joining us for the first time or repeat listener, every month we review recent guidelines and reviews within the field of gastroenterology and hepatology uh, to discuss the more salient points via the use of clinical cases. Uh, Today we have a great episode. Um, Jason, can you give us a couple couple takeaways so we can get our listeners kind of salivating on this, uh, this podcast that's coming? Yeah, this CPU is really useful for me. So when I was in fellowship, I had a lot of trouble sort of getting these terms straight, conceptualizing what it all meant. Um, I, I just felt very lost whenever an IBD patient came in for some type of screening or surveillance. And um, and so having this and, and having um, this interview has really helped me clarify a lot of the terminology as it's evolved apply some practical advice to to how to approach thinking about um, where we take biopsies, what we're looking for, why we're looking for them, and also some significant historical bits about why we carried some of these terms, why we carried some of these techniques um, based on the evolution of of the, the technology that we've been using. And now updating things for where we are now makes it a lot more clear in my mind how to approach these patients. There's going to be a lot less trepidation in the future. I love it. Uh, so let's get to the actually wait, wait. Okay. A couple things before we get to the show. Uh, if you haven't left us a review, like wherever you listen, listen or subscribe to podcasts, you know, Apple, Spotify, leave us a review. It takes a few seconds and it lets other people hear about the podcast. Um, also, uh, if you would like, follow along with the actual MRI Digest visual summary created by uh, um, Sicily, Cis- one of my co-fellows. And now we'll get to the show. Let's do it. See you there. So welcome to the Emeroid Digest podcast. Uh, we have a fantastic guest with us today, uh, Dr. Fernando Velayos. Um, he is a professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology at the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF uh, School of Medicine, and director of the Regional Program in Inflammatory Bowel Disease for Northern California Kaiser Permanente. Uh, He has co-authored numerous articles that have been published in journals such as Inflammatory Bowel Disease, Gastroenterology, and the American Journal of Gastroenterology. Uh, His clinical and research interests involve the use of novel therapies to treat IBD, and really important for our discussion, um, the prevention of colon cancer in patients with uh, inflammatory bowel disease. So, Dr. Velayos, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. 
Thank you so much, Juma and Jason, and uh, looking forward to uh, chatting today, and I really appreciate being invited to, to join this wonderful podcast. Absolutely. Appreciate your time. And um, I will, uh, I'll kick it to Jason yeah, to get it started. Yeah, so, so in the beginning, um, you know, we, we like to hear a little bit about you and where you're from, what got you into medicine, what got you into GI, and a little bit about your specific journey, keeping in mind that, you know, we have a lot of different listeners, medical students, internal medicine residents, GI fellows, young faculty who a lot of times are trying to find their way. And it's not immediately clear how to get from point A to whatever point B is. And it's fun to sort of do a sort of inside the actor's studio with folks who have gotten into these positions to do this incredible work that give these gifts to GI and to patients um, and contribute in significant ways. It kind of seems like a star off in the universe and it can, and hearing your story makes that real for, for our, in particular, our trainees who are, who are trying to find their way. So I, I wanted to ask you, tell us a little bit about your story. So go, going way back, and it's wonderful that you're doing this, going way back, so I was born in Argentina, um, came to the United States when I was uh, young. My father uh, was a colorectal surgeon and kind of had to redo kind of his training here in the United States when he came kind of back in the day. Uh, it's kind of back when they would just kind of give you a pager and said, good luck. Uh, <laughs> you know, call me if, call me if you're weak. Uh, and then uh, you kind of figured things out that way. Um, I lived in the East Coast for a while, mostly California. And I think to your point, um, you know, was interested in medicine from that perspective. Um, but uh, definitely gastroenterology was something that I came into much later on. Uh, probably like many medical students are trying to figure out, you know, surgery versus medicine. That once yeah. you get medicine, you know, you, you flirt a little bit with cardiology. Uh, <laughs> think about the radiation. And then ultimately, you know, you, you figure out, you know, do I want a procedural specialty or a, a cognitive specialty? And I think just over time, um, just, you know, I, I guess what I would say what made the biggest difference is getting a chance to rotate, go to different rotations, seeing what people do, um, having that experience. I mean, often it's just it's sometimes not even a rotation, but one person who kind of took you under your wing and mm. just kind of showed you the cool things in their specialty and that. I guess is what I would say what, you know, I try to do hopefully um, and try to kind of um, let people know why, why I think gastroenterology is a great, a great, uh, you know, specialty. Uh, but that being said, it was really, you know, kind of in their first year that I really, uh, of, of residency that um, was kind of cardiology and GI and kind of made the, made the plunge. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned, first of all, it feels like you described my arc autobiographically, like to a T. So I appreciate that. Um, you described the impact of, of a person on that arc and bending it one way or another. And I think a lot of us identify with that. And a lot of us that have not had that experience are looking for that. And, and when do you know that you found it? And so that's a roundabout way of asking about how mentorship is sort of very central to this process. Um, what do you? What would you say to medical students and trainees who are looking for mentors? A, what to look out for, and B, how to how to be a good mentee. What I would say is, um, f first, is, is a little bit of a track record, 
and that you do want to, um, and you'll kind of know pretty quickly if somebody has worked with students before, if they have a passion for it. Um, there are some people who are quite popular and they may be a little bit oversubscribed and they may not be the right fit for you. Um, so what I would say is that, um, I like the way you said how to be a good mentee. I think sometimes being present and being available for opportunities is really how you make those connections. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes it's, I mean, I don't even know with work hours and stuff now, but you know, sometimes it's that, that late night hard situation where you were kind of there and you were given a little bit of, you know, you were present, you were given a little bit more autonomy or somebody kind of guided you through something. I think that part of that mentee, being a mentee is really just being available and being present. Remember, mm -hmm. particularly for students, you're paying for your education. And so what you want is you want to make the most out of it and you want to get yeah. the most out of it in the time that you have. And so I guess I would say that's my, uh, if it's uh, pearls of wisdom, but I guess I would say that a, a little bit is also just uh, chance and just being available to the universe just help helps that process out. Yeah. Well put. Um, for those that, that are maybe a little bit further along in their career arc, late fellowship, early faculty or, or out in practice that want to be involved in a substantive way with societies, but just don't have a personal connection or a mentor or a benefactor that's kind of promoting them or well-connected recommendations on how, how people can, can get involved and make those connections. Well, currently right now I'm, I'm chair of the IBD section for the AGA. And that's a question we struggle with a lot, or we try to really answer because we do want uh, young faculty to be involved. Um, and there's not always an obvious path forward, even though increasingly societies are more, more and more kind of creating these pathways. So for example, and mm -hmm. in, in for, for our IBD section, we try to encourage or at least make sure that we have um, fellows um, as part of like the, the review process for, for abstracts, just kind of get that experience, which then connects you to other faculty members that are involved. Um, we always also try to have a young faculty member um, uh, be involved. But I will say this, don't be afraid to just send emails. I get, I get emails from people who want to participate, and that's pretty cool too. We really like that. Nice. And so don't be shy. And um, you can just kind of express this is what I'm interested in. And, um, you know, sometimes that'll open a door, sometimes not. But if, uh, if you don't, again, make yourself open to the universe, the, the chances are that you won't get that opportunity. So it's okay to kind of create them for yourself. That's great advice. I appreciate that. Chuma, I know we've got a boatload of material to get through. I'll kick it over to you. That's true. We have uh, these guidelines are not the not the shortest. Well, I shouldn't say guidelines. I'm, I actually I have to correct myself because this is a, what we're covering is a clinical practice update. Um, I guess for our audience who doesn't maybe ha doesn't know by now, so these are entitled AGA uh, Clinical Practice Update on Endoscopic Surveillance and Management of Colorectal Dysplasia in Inflammatory Bowel Disease Expert Review. Um, so we've, we've actually talked about, you know, clinical practice updates in the past. Um, so I am, I am going to just hop skip over that kind of discussion. Um, and uh, I do want to maybe just talk about the history of um, maybe colorectal dysplasia and IBD. Because, you know, when I initially, I guess, I had heard terms like DOM and OM. 
Um, and it doesn't seem like it seems like these these the CPU is kind of moving away from that language. So maybe um, maybe just talk us a little bit about like why you guys are moving away and what we're moving towards. I guess. Um, so I think what we're well, let me let me just kind of step back. So I think that uh, for cancer and dysplasia and IBD, I think the uh, what's almost as as interesting and well, hopefully useful as the clinical practice updates. And and for the record, the text is there, but we really tried to create very nice graphics to really kind of summarize them to the point where if you kind of read the graphics, that gives you the key thing. And that was actually a very important part of it because there is the reading part, but there is something very powerful about in a graphic or two being able to kind of summarize your thoughts. Um, but uh, the history, I think, is is almost as important as, as, the, as what we're talking about in terms of how to manage it. Recall that the first cancer diagnosis was 1925 by, by a case report by Burl Crone. And that really kind of set how IBD dysplasia was really conceptualized as different for the next 100 years, which was essentially that they saw the lesion. It was a patient who was not lost to follow-up. But in that inflammation, they could not really discern what was cancer, what was inflammation, or maybe when that ulcer turned into cancer. It was a rectal cancer. You figure it's the time of the rigid sigmoidoscopies. And so really that created this whole almost separate way of talking about cancer and dysplasia in IBD compared to non-IBD patients. Um, but again, remember that the elephant in the room is that over time, things have changed. I mean, you know, how we drive, how we live is different from 100 years ago, how we practice medicine and do cancer and dysplasia. So over time, technology has improved control of inflammation, has gone from those you know, uh, fiber optic scopes or rigid scopes to high definition scopes, better prep, better control of inflammation, to the point now that that merging of, 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 uh, tech, of, I guess, vocabulary also indicates that we see a lot more. And if you are, have a well-controlled um, duodenal colonoscopy in somebody's IBD, high definition scope, disease is well-controlled, you can see most of what you need to see. And so we don't need kind of this other way of describing IBD cancer dysplasia. So it's essentially emerging. So we just have to, there's one type of way of thinking about cancer screening and the same habits that are able to help you detect cancer and dysplasia in non-IBD patients are the same skills we're going to use in IBD patients. And that I think conceptually is, uh, is more powerful. And that's kind of what we try to get at in this clinical practice update. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I think that's great. Um, yeah, it seems like, um, you know, I guess in the past, so, you know, I guess DOM is like displays associated lesion or mass, but now we're kind of moving towards really just using the same language um, as we use in non-IBD patients, like flat, elevated, flat, flat depressed, and things like that. So, okay, so that's great. Um, so, um, you know, most of, I guess, what we're going to talk about is screening, you know, these patients for dysplasia. So I'm curious, um, you know, maybe just as the floor, you know, what do you, what are the, I guess, assumptions in a patient who's going to undergo a screening colonoscopy um, that actually allows you to effectively look for dysplasia or, or cancer uh, in these patients? So, and I'll kind of get back to my kind of, I'll kind of get back to always to the same message, which is, you know, what, what do we expect or what do we need in the non-IBD patient? So that's going to be, all of this is predicated on being able to see the mucosa. So some things are common. So for example, a good prep is going to be critical. Um, 
taking your time, washing behind each fold. But remember that this is not a quote unquote normal colon, it's an inflamed colon. And so the extra thing that you're gonna need to do is, you know, the same way that you use your eyes and look for any kind of subtle clue, you're gonna use the same thing in the IBD patient. The only thing is that sometimes that distinction is a little bit harder when, the, when there's an ulcer, when there's erythema, um, when there's, you know, not as, you know, it's, it's, it, it can be kind of obscured a little bit. And so what I would say is that the, the key things are the same thing as in the IBD patient, but in the IBD patient, in addition, you're just going to use your eyeball. And so even if you don't know what dysplastic lesions can look like, what I always use is try to figure out what's different than its neighbor. What's different than its neighbor should be, a, a should, you should pause an extra second or two. So an area that looks red, but there's a slightly redder area. Um, it's kind of ulcerated, but there's an extra deep ulcer in a certain section. Those are things that can give you clues, even if you don't recognize that as dysplasia, that may warrant an attention or a biopsy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how about this? Yeah, how about we get, we'll get to the cases and then if uh, we'll, we'll just, you know, jump off from there from, uh, if we have further questions. So I'll start with case number one. Um, I've, I named her Miss Askew. Uh, so she's a 26-year-old female. Uh, she has a history of ulcerative colitis. Uh, she's actually presenting now to the ED with fever, abdominal pain, rectal bleeding, and uh, they're concerned for a flare. Okay, she was previously on infliximab, well controlled, uh, but she had a lapse in her insurance, and so six months ago she, um, you know, she actually she she stopped taking the medication because she couldn't afford it. Um, she said she was doing okay for about four months. You know, but for the last eight weeks, these symptoms of abdominal pain, rectal bleeding have progressively worsened uh, to the point where she really needed to come to the ED because she, you know, she really couldn't, like, eat anything. Um, and her pain was unbearable. Um, so, you know, they called GI. Um, you know, I guess they do the initial workup. Uh, you know, C. diff is negative. Infectious workup is negative, And she goes for endoscopy. Um and basically, you know, when they get in there, they, they really see extensive inflammation. She has spontaneous bleeding and, and ulceration, you know, seen from basically the rectum. And they're not even able to get beyond the transverse colon because um, the inflammation is really so severe. Um, while they're in there, they do see a, a 1.5 centimeter nodular area um, in the descending colon. And because everything, you know, there's so much inflammation, they just take biopsies of it, you know, take some random biopsies of the colon, and then they kind of just get out. Um, and, uh, yeah, so basically I'm, I'm pushing forward even more. So the path, you know, throughout the colon, active colitis, crypt architectural distortion, and the biopsy of the nodule is consistent with indefinite dysplasia. Um so now I guess I'm, I'm curious from your standpoint, uh, what do you think of this case? Uh, would you have done anything different? Uh, you know, what, do you, what are your thoughts? And this is, uh, this is a, a made-up patient. Chuma is not, not asking for himself or a friend. He just made yes, up. I understand. <laughs> yes, there's always that important uh, disclaimer. I, I appreciate that. So, um, so a, couple, a couple of things to unwind there in terms of what, so what I would say is let's kind of first start with the um, decision to not remove the, this nodule. 
um, regardless of what the pathology showed. Um, so I would I would agree with that. So remember that the um, first of all, obviously, when a colon is inflamed, uh, that's probably not the time to try to take out something that looks probably difficult or challenging to remove in some way. So I think it's very appropriate to uh, take a biopsy and then wait for the for the path pathology to come back, control the inflammation, and then you can kind of better decide what to do. Now, indefinite dysplasia is one of these very interesting things because indefinite dysplasia makes it sound like it's you know, maybe dysplasia, maybe not dysplasia. What I would say is I would think of it really as just not informative. So besides, you know, having a pathologist take a look at it, often they will tell you, you know, this looks a little bit more like dysplasia or this looks more reactive. It's very helpful to still get a second opinion discussion on that. But regardless, even if it said it looked more reactive, you're absolutely going to follow this up with a colonoscopy. The key thing is you just need the, the inflammation to be better controlled a, to be able to look at it better, and B, um, you know, if you do want to remove it or if it does require resection, you're able to do it. Um, and th this really gets back to remember that, you know, these biopsies don't exist. They're, they're, they're contextual and that they're of a nodule, which probably, you know, nodules don't really just kind of show up. It, you know, even if it's just nothing, you know, using the word nodule doesn't seem right. So you are going to follow this up regardless, even if the path came back normal. If your eye again, if your eyeball says this looks kind of funky, regardless of what the path is, um, you probably do want to control inflammation so you can just better assess what's going on there. Okay. Um, okay. So let's say, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, in this case, very concerned for you know ulcer, maybe even acute severe ulcerative colitis. She responds to IV steroids. You know, we get her back on infliximab. Um, does, um, does the fact, I guess, that she, so it sounds like the fact that she has a nodule, you know, in addition to this inflammation, it doesn't really, like, when do you, when are you going to bring this patient back um, for her next colonoscopy? Assuming, I guess at this point, maybe you're not even thinking about necessarily the dysplasia, but when do you, like, what's your time scale for bringing her back for a colonoscopy? So, so I, I would say, you know, all colonoscopies need to have an indication. And so what I try to do is after every colonoscopy, when I set kind of the next colonoscopy, you know, there's two, there's two ways of doing it. One is you're kind of deciding when the next colonoscopy is from a surveillance perspective. And the second one is, you know, to, to monitor disease. So for example, where we are, we try to kind of put that next colonoscopy, or at least we clarify that it's for, you know, the next colonoscopy for a screening purpose, you know, but um, so in, in this case, so regardless, I would probably repeat this in the three to six month range. Um, it just depends on how concerning that nodule was to you, you know, because right now maybe I'm perseverating on it a little bit too much, but if I'm seeing a lesion that doesn't seem right. Now, if it looked like something simpler, then that's different. Um, then get the inflammation under control and kind of thinking kind of in a treat to target approach. Um, you, you know, you, you may want to repeat this again, I'd say anywhere in three to six months. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Um, okay. So, uh, we'll push the case forward ambiguously for you. So, um, you know, she actually goes to see your local gastroenterologist, uh, and she only goes, comes back to see you, uh, after her disease is in remission, I guess, years down the road. Um, all we know is in between. The next colonoscopy did, did not show any any nodule. Um, so I guess in her case, how do you, when is she going to need her first, 
her first, I guess, um, colonoscopy for uh, like colon cancer screening. So, you know, in, in the clinical practice updates, what we tried to do was to, you know, the, the concept of kind of every year colonoscopy seems a little seemed a little much for for the modern the modern era in that um, if you think about it if the if, if someone is diagnosed at age you know 20 to 30 they get it eight to ten years after their colonoscopy and then every year I mean that's you're getting to like 30 to 60 colonoscopies over a lifetime I mean that's that's more than if you had FAP I mean you're kind of just you're, you think that the risk of cancer is at that level or that your ability detected between colonoscopies is so poor that you need that frequent. And that's kind of where we get to that history part, where um, that natural history has changed with high definition scopes and control of inflammation. Now, in the clinical practice updates, we did not change. We didn't find any new data to make any dramatic changes. We typically recommend eight to 10 years after that initial diagnosis to do a colonoscopy, even if you have proctitis. And the main reason why is just to stage, just to make sure whether it's now, they could have had also colonoscopies in between, but obviously the milder the disease, perhaps they may not have come to see you. Um, and then based on that um, and based on the severity, you can then decide um, the next follow-up. And we tried to kind of divide it up into kind of a one, two to three year or five years. And with most people now, I think most people probably would feel comfortable to two or three years, kind of thinking of it as more of a high-risk polyp. Um, and then one of the things that we added is this new category, which we're kind of inching our way similar to what the um, some of the European guidelines are. And I kind of think what we what kind of happens in real life is that there are patients who have colitis and they come back and it's either very limited or it's normal. And you scope them a couple of times and you know they had a history of colitis, but their colonoscopies are repeatedly normal. What tends to happen now is you tell them to come back in a year and they see you in five. So um, if you have a good quality colonoscopy, there's really mucosal healing and there's a couple of colonoscopies in a row that don't show dysplasia, that kind of selected group, we're kind of inching them forward to five years. Um, and I think that that seems to be reasonable. There was an, a nice study that showed that um, having a two consecutive colonoscopies um, without dysplasia, um, your risk of developing colon cancer is, is uh, at five years is similar to, um, you know, kind of having a, a regular low-risk polyp. So that's kind of how that number came across. Yeah. And I guess the, the assumptions in that case, too, is that I guess they're also not having any disease activity in between those normal colonoscopies, or is, is that not matter? Correct. Correct. Okay. I mean, that in, in, the, in the CPU, we kind of really said that um, normal colonoscopy, you know, it's kind of that super, that very low-risk patient doesn't have pseudopolyps. You know, if, you've, if they're kind of been monitored and they just continue to be normal, it, it's probably reasonable to extend them out. Um, and I think with, you know, more, more commonly is that the one-year follow-up is really designated for like the super inflamed colon, where you probably, probably not really able to really do a good assessment for, for, for dysplasia. And most people now falling in between kind of two or three years. Okay. You know, okay. I, I think having to do so many repetitive colonoscopies, if you did a high-quality exam, kind of getting to the CPU, if you did a high-quality exam, there should be a reward for the patient and uh, that you feel confident that they can, you can extend it out now to kind of to two or three years. Or, and the more stable they are, I think the better, the more, the more comfortable people are going to three years. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I like that idea of kind of rewarding our patients with spacing out colonoscopies. Um, I'm sure they're very grateful. Uh, so, okay, let's say that, you know, in the case-wise, you know, maybe she was diagnosed two years before she had this uh, acute hospital visit. Six more years pass, so she sees you. You're getting ready to do a colonoscopy. Is this a person who you would do chromoendoscopy in because it's her first um, one, or would you kind of reserve that for a more high-risk patient like someone with PSC? It's a great, great question. And I think the role, so th this is what we know about chromoendoscopy. So first of all, I do perform chromoendoscopy. I, I think it does help. Um, that being said, uh, in the right patient, I think is the is is to your point the the best way of of, of thinking about how to use it. Um, there was a time where, I mean, I, I don't think everyone needs chromoendoscopy every single procedure, but I do think that uh, chromoendoscopy exam, a high quality every so often, is is actually quite reasonable. Remember that the original um, studies do show that there's an increased yield compared to white light. But that yield and, and a couple of meta-analyses seem to be less if used with the high-definition scopes, okay? So what I would say is that if, if the colon is quiescent, um, uh, you know, you're kind of seeing a patient for the first time, and, you know, I think it's reasonable to do a, a, a chromoendoscopy exam, uh, but I don't think you need to do every single time, you know? Regardless, it's, it's not technically challenging, but there is, there is a little bit of extra time and mess associated with it. And then um, should we, can we talk a little bit about, I guess, um, you know, dye spray chromoendoscopy versus uh, virtual chromoendoscopy? Um, I guess just your take on it and then, uh, I don't know, how do you decide which one to use? Is, are they equivalent to one another insofar as dysplasia surveillance? Or? So for your listeners, so, so dye spray chromoendoscopy is essentially you're going to apply a, a dye to, onto the colon, uh, either methylene blue or indigo carmine. And you can visualize it as essentially, you know, if you, if you went to get a fingerprint, you know, you can look at your finger and you can kind of see the little whirls in the fingerprint. But if you kind of do a fingerprint, it just really just pops out a lot more easily, right? It gets in those grooves. You can kind of see things a little bit easier. And so I kind of think of chromoendoscopy as an aid to your eyeball. I mean, it's unusual. There are times where you don't see something and it just pops up. If you do carefully, but it, it makes it easier for you to see the lesion. So it makes your brain and your eyes work less. And so that's somewhere that's something that is um, that's kind of how the dye spray works. Now the virtual is kind of a post-processing kind of pseudo-colorized where they try to um, highlight different parts of the colon using different colors. Um, and those are proprietary. So for example, Olympus has NBI, uh, Pentax or narrowband imaging. Pentex has eye scan, and so it's a way of kind of um, kind of tweaking the picture to help you essentially have the same thing, kind of see those distinctions maybe a little bit easier. So with virtual chromoendoscopy, we included that in the clinical practice updates, um, primarily because the data regarding its use um, seems a little bit more favorable than the original ones. Initially, there was really no difference between white light and, and virtual chromoendoscopy. But more recently in meta-analyses, they, they seem to be more on par. And several societies do actually um, uh, suggest that that is a viable option for screening so that you don't need to do dye spray. Um, what we've noticed is that a lot of people would rather do that because it's honestly just easier, it's less messy. 
Um, I will still do the dye spray, but um, that is something that we include in the clinical practice updates based on these kind of emerging data. Quick random question in the middle of that. What's the volume of dye that you go through in a case? Oh, that's always like a like the, the secret recipe of... Yeah. It depends on like the, you know, because there's different... You know, it depends on the the, the, the what you use. So I, I would say may, maybe for the listeners, we'll, we'll put a couple recipes out. But what I would say is that, let me actually just say kind of the end effect should be that it should be a kind of a light dusting. That way I said, if it's too dark, it's almost worse than doing nothing at all. Um, almost because like you spend most of your time cleaning up the colon. And so what I would say, it should be... Um, uh, kind of a, I use methylene blue primarily, so we it's just kind of a lighter a lighter purple. Um, often, what I will do is, um, you know, in the original trials, they would uh, the way they were done because you were comparing white light and chroma. They would go to the end, come back in a segment, then spray and come back again. Um, often, if I know a patient, um, I will just start with the dye spray, and so you need to use less volume. And so by the time you start coming back, all that fluid has already had time to kind of penetrate. Mm -hmm. And that way you just have this, you know, kind of light dusting, almost like a melanosis, a blue melanosis of the colon um, yeah. without having to do a lot of, of, of extra work and a lot of suctioning and cleaning up. Yeah. Because again, nice. what we don't want to do is that's one of the problems with, with dye chromoendoscopy, similar to the random biopsies, and we haven't talked about those. Um, but... You know, you could spend most of your time doing the dye spraying and focusing on that and doing the, the, the um, random biopsies. But what if I told you that 90% of dysplasia is visible? And so if you had a certain amount of time during the colonoscopy, you're better off. And that's kind of what gets to the clinical practice updates. Focusing on what's going to give you the biggest yield. And one of the things that we did do is that we kind of called either random or targeted by or random biopsies or dye spray as kind of adjuncts to kind of make it more, kind of put it in its place in terms of what the goal is. So dyspray chromoendoscopy is not gonna help you find all the polyps. It's gonna help you distinguish the, or virtual, it's gonna help you increase your yield maybe by that extra two to 3%, similar to you know, maybe a cap or an endo cuff or something similar. But if you had to struggle with the endo cuff the whole procedure, that's, a, that's, not, a good, that's not a good use of that of that, of that good strategy. Analogy. It's a great point to make, and the you know the rhetorical taxonomy there I think really helps highlight that. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, okay, so okay, let's say we're sticking with this case. So, um, all right, so you you, you perform uh, colonoscopy, uh, just high definition white light, okay, uh, and let's see, most of the colon. So, okay, let's see. Uh, okay, you you see a one point eight centimeter lesion sessile lesion in the transverse colon um really you know the remaining colon appears like mayo zero to one uh disease and then um yeah so i guess i want to stop there with the i guess this this lesion um um how when you i guess when you see any lesion in you know like a, an ibd patient um what are you specifically looking for, you, like the borders, and what are you worried about that's going to make you, you know, want to resect it versus, I guess, have a little pause and, you know, 
decide not to resect it? Or I guess if you don't resect it, you know, how would you deal with it? Um, so what, what I would say is that um, I think that this is, I think, where that concept of trying to unify what you would do in a patient with IDBD, I think, becomes at least powerful, or at least how I like to kind of conceptualize it. So if you see that lesion, so if you did not have a patient with IBD, you probably would not just leave the lesion alone, right? So something has to be done, right? So, and the fact that they have um, inflammatory bowel disease does not mean that that lesion is not resectable. As a matter of fact, a lot of lesions are resectable by, by gastroenterologists. I'll kind of step back a little bit in terms of history, which is that for the longest time, the only things that existed in the IBD world were DALMs, so this kind of irregular thing, and then essentially invisible dysplasia. But around 1999 in gastroenterology, December, there was these back-to-back um, uh, publications which really described what people had been doing for a long time, taking out these little polyps all the time in patients with IBD without really any consequence. And so what I would say is that if that 1.8 centimeter lesion if there's not inflammation, Mayo zero would be really a normal border. Mayo one is maybe some mild erythema. Um, so not kind of on the moderate side at all, kind of mild. If that is a lesion that you otherwise was pretty readily resectable, that's quite acceptable for you to resect. If on the other hand, you decide to inject that lesion, it's a little scarred down, which is what we can talk about, one of the challenges of removal. Or for whatever reason, you're like, you know what, this is resectable, but maybe not by me then I think it's reasonable to refer that patient for an interventional, to an interventionalist. So I think that um, you know, increasingly we're able, and when I say we, we mean like GI, it may not be one, it may be your, one of your colleagues. These lesions increasingly are, are resectable. Um, now in the colon, if it's scarred down, it's more challenging. Um, it might be more piecemeal, and that's where you may want to get an interventionalist. But if, if otherwise the lesion lifts, you know, there's not a lot of inflammation and you otherwise would have felt comfortable taking it out, um, I think it's quite reasonable. I mean, 1.8, you know, it's starting to get a little bit more advanced, but definitely things that are much smaller, those things should just be taken out and patients don't need a second colonoscopy. Okay, great. Um, and so I guess, so... Oh, yeah, and I forgot I guess, your question. Let me answer your question. <laughs> Sorry. I do remember your question. So, <laughs> So the things that you're looking for with to that point, thank you for reminding me, is um, is primarily like to your, what you were saying is really the borders. Are the borders very clear? Are they defined? But again, I think it really gets more to that kind of gestalt. You know when you can take out a polyp or when something does not look right and just needs an operation or there's probably a cancer in it. That intuition is no different in the IBD patient. But it's going to be borders. You want to come in on ulcerations. Those are challenging. It might increase the risk of cancer. Um, and then if you decide to lift it, if it's kind of scarred down, it might be that there's a cancer in there, or it might just simply be a scarred down colon from the inflammation itself, from the disease. Okay. Um, and so I guess in this patient, um, assuming the only prior colonoscopy you had was the one that you did six years ago when she got really sick, um, like, how, how, like are you, how do you go about... And she's got Mayo zero to one. Yeah, maybe like I'll say she's got maybe from like this, the descending colon to the rectum is mostly Mayo one, but the rest is really Mayo zero. Um, where are you biopsying? You know, are you are you doing random targeted? Like how how are you and where? Yeah, so how are you doing that? 
so I guess so. Kind of moving. So this is kind of independent of the lesion, right? So are we how, right. are we are yes. we screening for kind of invisible dysplasia? So one of the things that we did in the uh, in the clinical practice updates is we um, kind of you know it, it, at some point it is all semantics, but tried to kind of say you know your biopsy should be should be contextual and there should there should be a purpose to them. And so one is that we called, um, so we have targeted biopsies, we have non-targeted biopsies, and we have staging biopsies. It's a little bit of an artificial construct, but to say that a targeted biopsy is something that you are biopsying because your eyeball says, this does not look right. And it's not obviously a polyp, but it's either an ulcer. And so what we recommend is that if you're like, you know, this looks a little redder, it's a little more ulcerated, you biopsy, you mention it in the report, so magically it's not, you know, invisible dysplasia or a random biopsy, because it wasn't really random. If you really think about the original random biopsies, if they say take biopsies throughout the colon in this patient with inflammation, realistically, you're already gonna, your biopsies are probably not random. They probably are gonna be in the more ulcerated area, the redder area, um, you know, the bumpier area. And so what we're saying is that if you're really biopsying something to just be more explicit in your report so that it's not kind of a, a surprise. Non-targeted biopsies are truly that you're taking biopsies of that red colon, that descending colon, and there's, you're, you're, there's no reason for you to think that there's any dysplasia in that area. So biopsying there as opposed to five centimeters different would have literally been the same thing. And then finally, staging biopsies. So if you do chromoendoscopy, you don't, you know, you don't really need to do a lot of extra biopsying. We think that that's high quality enough. Um, but often we will take a couple biopsies of the right colon, the, the left colon, the rectum, just as staging. Um, and so really just to kind of stage disease. Um, and at that point, obviously, they're going to comment on dysplasia, but you're not um, taking a lot of extra biopsies. So if, for example, you don't do chromoendoscopy, um, often we recommend that you do some type of non-targeted biopsies throughout the colon, kind of, kind of extra biopsies. Hmm. Okay. Um, and then I guess in this case, you would, you would kind of just, you maybe would, you should have like how many, three jars would you say like, you know, right colon, left colon, you know, resection, and then that's it? Or would you do, would you kind of even narrow it down even further with? No, I mean, I think if you're truly doing either staging or, or non-targeted bio, I mean, I guess I would say, I mean, usually I'll do kind of right colon, left colon, rectum. You know, sometimes those rectal biopsies do come in handy in the future if somebody needs an operation or there's uncertainty in, in terms of whether there's involvement. Uh, but clearly you're gonna address the resected area. I mean, that's your main finding. Um, and then something that sometimes people used to do in the past was, you know, do you kind of biopsy around the, the lesion, you know? And again, that kind of gets back to history. Remember that, that that's at a time where, so I'm, I'm gonna take you back uh, um, in, in that, um, we did, we did a kind of review from 2017 where we kind of put in a picture, kind of a fascinating picture I found from 1973, a fiber optic scope. And they kind of showed all the cool things that the flexible sigmoidoscopy did. And they had lesions like a rectal cancer and these different things. I mean, it's amazing what you would see besides the poor prep, like a thing that looked like a cancer, like it doesn't look like a cancer at all. So you can imagine that at a time when you're seeing a dome you have that little, you know, you're, you're, you're essentially see this inflamed area and this nodular area. It is helpful to kind of biopsy around the area. And, and, and you know, when we started distinguishing between DALMS and ALMS, 
that was almost a defining feature that the dome was one where it seemed like the dysplasia extended beyond what looked to be the borders of the lesion. And the ulm was something where you kind of removed it, you biopsied around it, it was kind of belt and suspenders. You made sure there was nothing that you were missing. But there was a nice study by Dr. Rubin where he showed that the yield of that, particularly with high definition scopes in the modern era, is pretty low. So often that's not a requirement. If you can see it, the inflammation is, is controlled, you can define the borders, you can remove it, you can assume that you took it out completely similar to the patient without IBD. I like it. Okay, great. Um, okay, Try to simplify so, things and focus, yeah. focus on what's important. It was kind of part of our, our messaging with the clinical practice updates in an evidence-based way. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, throwing a little curveball here. So you take out this, you successfully remove the 1.8 centimeter lesion, um, and uh, you get the path back. And so that lesion comes back as uh, comes back as low grade dysplasia, uh, and then some of the biopsies from the left colon, uh, not in the rectum, uh, come back as let's say let's say indefinite dysplasia. Okay, um, what do you what do you what are your thoughts? What are you doing next? <laughs> Well, I, I would say, so the, the low, so first kind of in, in, in thinking, again, I, I, I kind of get back to the non-IBD patient. If you had a defined lesion, remember that tubular adenomas essentially are low-grade dysplasia. So the, the, the lesion itself, the pathology itself is a low-grade lesion. Um, obviously, if you're starting to have dysplasia on your non-targeted biopsies elsewhere in the colon, you get, start to get a little bit concerned. Um, one of the things that we recommended if there is low-grade dysplasia on non-targeted biopsies, um, that you repeat a colonoscopy with chromoendoscopy. Now, in this case, if you already did it with chromoendoscopy, it makes you think that this is truly invisible dysplasia. That becomes a little bit more challenging because you're not, you know, there's nothing that could potentially take. I mean, part of what we, part of what we experience in, in both clinically and in the clinical practice updates is that often... These non-targeted biopsies may not really be non-targeted. There might be a lesion or there's a lot of inflammation. And so if you can control the inflammation, repeat the exam, make sure you're clean, the inflammation is controlled, you may be able to see a lesion and then decide at that point whether you can resect it or not. But what I would say is that if you have ongoing low-grade dysplasia on colonoscopies, um, you probably need to have a serious discussion as to where you can't see anything. You probably need to have a discussion on whether to have an operation or not. Um, if you have high-grade dysplasia, you probably do need to start talking about surgery on, on non-targeted biopsies. So that part has not really changed over time. Hmm. Okay. You know? I like it. Um, and then let me just say see. that you know part of the trick is that low-grade dysplasia. So in the 2010 guidelines, they kind of put as uncertain if somebody who has low-grade dysplasia on, on non-targeted biopsies, whether they need a colectomy or not. And there was a very interesting study um, done in Europe where they reread over, I think, a 20-plus year time period um, all the cases that had dysplasia, but kind of by the modern pathologists. And they kind of were blinded, and they looked to see what was the outcome with those patients. And what they found was that in the original cohort, that the risk of dysplasia, progression to cancer for low-grade dysplasia, was actually quite low. But when it was reread, where theoretically there's a more education in terms of discerning between inflammation and what's truly dysplasia, 
um, they found that the ones that had been reread as low-grade dysplasia, that that risk of developing cancer actually went up. And so what that means is that if you have a good pathologist and it's really low-grade dysplasia as opposed to inflammation or reactive, that, that patient probably does need an operation. Um, but I don't think that one set of biopsies enough, so often we will recommend kind of repeating and just seeing and just taking extensive biopsies from that area where theoretically the dysplasia was seen. But it's really the pathologist that you need to help you out. You know, and often they'll tell you, this looks a little more reactive or no, this is a little bit concerning to me. Okay. Um, just ask real quick. So, you know, I know when we talk about non-targeted biopsies, we, we talk about every 10 centimeters. Some people talk about segments. And I think that, especially in centers where people are scoping each other's patients, maybe there's not that provider continuity. It gets a little bit challenging to re-identify some of those areas. Yes. Your 60 is not my 60. Your 40 is not my 40. Did you take it from the proximal descending, the mid-descending, or the distal descending? How do you contend with that? How do you describe your jars? What, what sort of protocol do, do you use? So, I mean, I, I think that if, if you do describe things, if you're, if you're doing non-targeted biopsies every, every 10 centimeters, I, th I think that that's probably about as accurate as you can get. It's similar to Barrett surveillance. It, at least it's something, you know. Although, you know, your 60 is not my 60, it's, you know, it's probably not 10 either. And so yeah. it, at least, it at least helps you get you a little bit more into the neighborhood one way or the other. But, no, that, that becomes a major challenge. And so... That's why often when there is um, kind of dysplasia that we see on non-targeted biopsies, we, we kind of say we, we should relook and A, make sure that we agree and, and whatever that area is, you know, try to, and, and part of what we do is really just try to, in the CPU is really just try to say, you know, be as descriptive as possible. Yeah. Um, so you know, sometimes I'll even say like 60 centimeters. Like, you know, I mean, you kind of know if you're like in the, you know, sometimes you're like at 35 centimeters, but you're like, this feels more like descending. So I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll do both. I'll do like a 35 centimeter plus this or 60 at the flexure versus 60 in the transverse. So yeah. those little clues are things that, you know, seeing folks as second opinions, you realize that those are the things that really help you at least, you know, and, and it, it takes an extra second in the report. And so we just try to, you know, say if you can do that, that actually is helpful for that second opinion. No, it's really helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Um, okay. So kind of what I'm hearing is that in this case, you'd probably, you're probably going to repeat a colonoscopy probably in three months using chromoendoscopy, maybe intensifying therapy. Um, so let's say you do all those things. Um, and actually, I guess the extra information is that from that lesion, uh, it's actually, it has clear margins that, that, lesion that you resected um, so that's great you bring her back in three months you know use chromoendoscopy you don't there's no lesion that you find but you take biopsies in the descending colon and uh you know all the path comes back is just you know chronic active colitis there's no uh, dysplasia um so that's a good result actually yeah well then at that point let's say after that colonoscopy when do you bring them back after that one? <laughs> Just as in like in a case where, you know, now you've, I don't know, I guess reassured yourself with chromoendoscopy that there's no visible dysplasia and 
things got better, are you still going to say like three months or do you space them out to six months or do you just no, I mean, kind of I, feel I, thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I, if I, if I, I think if, if the lesion is kind of 1.8, I probably would bring them a little bit sooner, kind of six to 12 months, if you think everything has been removed, just to make sure that there's, you know, because somebody who has a polyp, and again, it, that 1.8 centimeter polyp is in a 35-year-old, you're going to think about that a little bit differently. And so, you know, sometimes it's, you know, you, 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 you decide with your brain and sometimes with your heart. And sometimes you say, you know, this, this feels like it's, it's kind of different from, uh, from somebody else who, who, um, who doesn't have dysplasia or didn't have this polyp, depending on their age. So for most, in the clinical practice updates, you know, if, if somebody had a pretty, I think it's either a centimeter, less than a centimeter um, lesion, and you removed it, you think it's fine, you know, that, that person gets probably fine, you know, one to two years. Um, if it's a younger person, 1.8 centimeter lesion, it looked a little funky, um, particularly if you had this maybe indefinite dysplasia, I, I might bring them one extra time back at six months uh, just to kind of be on the safe side. I mean, that's, you know, more more intuition, I think, more than evidence-based just because we don't have that kind of data. But um, I, I think that's probably reasonable um, use of resources and really kind of focusing those exams on those more high-risk patients and then letting those that are truly low, low risk, which I think was part of the clinical practice updates, just say, it's okay, you don't need as frequent a colonoscopy. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so that's great. Um, so I will, I'm gonna leave that case alone where it is. I, I feel like we touched on actually on a lot of different points. So I kinda wanna get to some um, random questions that have come sure. up uh, in my very uh, short time as a fellow. So, uh, question. Um, for patients who are in um, deep remission but continue on biopsies to have histologic activity, is there any, like, do they have a higher risk of developing cancer than those who, you know, who have deep remission and then no histologic activity? Or, you know, is, yeah, is there a significant difference? So, I, I, you know, there there have been a couple of um, studies that have tried to kind of grade histology. I mean, they've all been kind of either proprietary or kind of semi-quantitative degrees of inflammation. And so, although I can't answer that specific question, um, definitely the, the presence of inflammation does statistically increase your risk. Um, that being said, you know, sometimes when we talk about risk benefits for medication, I will say, for example... You know, if you have four pennies and I have one, you have four times more money than I do, but we can't buy a cup of coffee. So even then you're okay. You know, you're still good. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really when you start getting into that more moderate inflammation that you are probably meaningfully increasing your risk as opposed to just statistically over a lifetime. So I don't think that, that patients in deep remission, it looks normal, but there's mild chronic active inflammation you know, you'll, they're, they're, they're at low risk, but you're going to keep an eye on them as opposed to the person who truly are like, did they even have ulcerative colitis in the first place? Right, right. And then um, the, the, the CPU kind of mentions a little bit about, um, while we're on the topic of inflammation, <laughs> about chemo prevention uh, in, in patients, you know, IBD and dysplasia. Um, what, and they, 
I don't know. What are your thoughts on? Uh, it mentioned a little bit about mesalamine, but there was kind of like, hey, just focus on treating the inflammation. Like, what would you say to a patient who's like, I'm very concerned about cancer. You know, can we add mesalamine on top of, you know, my infliximab to to decrease my risk for cancer or something? So back in the day, one of the first papers I did was uh, the meta-analysis looking at mesalamine as a chemopreventive agent. And reading through a variety of, of um, medications and then during fellowship did a case control study. And what I learned, even though the numbers weren't there, is that you know at some point, I, some of that data can be definitely um, affected by co- confounding by indication. You know? And the thing is that if you're not on a 5-ASA, what do you want? So it's kind of heterogeneous, right? Because before there wasn't a ton of medications, you know, where you want no medication, and so you kind of were fell through the cracks, or where you're kind of super sick and you end up with a colectomy. Uh, and so what we've learned, like, over the last, you know, 10, 20 years is that probably that the medication itself is less relevant than the control of inflammation. So... And the point, the reason why that point is relevant is that if somebody is on a biologic, it's probably not necessary to add mesalamine for a chemopreventive agent. And so I think that's really the where that part of the of this of the clinical practice update section came was kind of meant to highlight is that focus on inflammation, get to mucosal healing, however that is, and you don't need to add mesalamine because of you know papers from back in the day showing that it seemed to have a chemopreventive benefit because what we've learned since then is that that might not be strong, a, a super strong signal and it could be confounded. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of just want to finish it up with, um, are there, um, are there common mistakes you, you see or common, you know, um, issues that you run into with, you know, patients over and over again or, you know, referrals you get from like, you know, community, yeah. you know, docs that kind of drive you nuts that, I don't know, any words of wisdom? Well, for, I would, you know, it's, always, it's always a challenge because we, we are all sinners. So, you know, we are, we are all imperfect beings. Uh, so what I would say is that um, things though that I think are um, helpful, uh, particularly for second opinions, is I think good documentation is what's really going to be the most helpful um, for for that second opinion. Um, uh, you know, I don't I don't know if I necessarily would say any big um, mistakes or errors, uh, but I, what I'd say is that what is the most helpful is really to kind of document um, as much as possible. Um, you know, particularly when because often we we get involved when when dysplasia is found. We often don't get involved when dysplasia is not found. And so what happens is that, you know, it's nicer to, to be able to say, okay, that, you know, sometimes people took random biopsies throughout the colon and put it all in one jar. And then there's dysplasia. So what do you do with that? Well, of course, you're going to do colonoscopies. You're gonna, but, but that creates extra anxiety for, for not a clear reason when it would have been just easier to say we just biopsy the rectum or put it in two jars or however you're going to do it. So I think just that little level of detail is helpful because... You know, the only time you're going to need to have that second opinion is when you find dysplasia. Uh, Fernando, this has been an excellent discussion on, um, you know, dysplasia and IBD. I, I really appreciate your time. Um, 
for our listeners who want to, um, I don't know, keep up with your work or, you know, do you have like a, a website or anything you'd like to, to plug as we kind of close up the episode? You know, I, I feel like I need, I'm, I'm, uh, my, part of my, my uh, New Year's resolution is to uh, up, up my, my social media game, but I'm, I'm at, at Real Seekum and uh, we, uh, That's a great you know, name. right now I kind of retweet things as opposed <laughs> to actually provide original content, but uh, I think we're going to uh, try to have that as our New Year's resolution, put a little bit more original content uh, related to well, IBD and, and things that we're doing. I love it. At Real Seekum, that's great. Um, <laughs> um, it has been a, a pleasure having you on the show. Um, really, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. Jim and Jason, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. And, and thanks for inviting me to the podcast. It's like such a wonderful podcast. Thank you. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. <laughs> we are signing off. Hang on to your hats, y'all. Medicine is a lifelong learning process, and this podcast is part of that process for us. While every effort is taken to ensure the accuracy of the material presented, we realize that medicine is constantly changing, not to mention that art comes along with science. In a recording conversation like this, we may make a mistake or get something wrong. We welcome comments, suggestions, or corrections. This material is presented for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be, nor should it be understood or construed to be professional advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical or health advice to treat yourself or others, whether you're a credentialed medical provider or otherwise. Listening to this podcast does not constitute medical advice, nor does it engender a physician-patient relationship. This podcast should not be considered as replacement for the services of a licensed, trained physician or healthcare professional. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. No author or guest of this podcast shall be held liable or responsible for any errors or omissions on this podcast or for any damage you may suffer as a result of failing to see competent medical or health advice from a professional that's familiar with your situation. Furthermore, this podcast is not to be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a, quote, standard of care, in a legal sense, or as a basis for witness testimony. The views, opinions, and beliefs expressed in this podcast are those of the commentators alone, and we make no guarantee about the accuracy of the statements or opinions put forth. This podcast and its contents do not necessarily state or reflect the views, opinions, and beliefs of any employer, company, medical society, or other entity with which the host or guests are affiliated, professionally, or otherwise. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. We do not accept any advertising money. Reference within the podcast to any specific commercial product, process, services by trading, trademark, manufacturer, or other does not necessarily constitute or imply its endorsement or recommendation. Basically, this podcast is solely educational and don't sue us. All right. See you next time, guys.